This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Handballs and encroachment. I forget which Bronte sister wrote that, but what a chance to relive those moments at Stamford Bridge last night. Chelsea deserved this over both legs and a huge moment. And a huge achievement for Graham Potter. Dortmund, off the back of 10 straight wins, just didn't quite turn up. Without Adeyemi and losing Brandt early, it was a step too far. Elsewhere, Benfica cruised past Bruges, Scott Parker and his cream gilet. We'll look ahead to tonight's games and then a bit of the rest. Ethan Pinnock's Pushkas Award contender. Outrage as Vout Veghorst hits a bit of wood. Supermodels as FIFA fans ambassadors. Your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning, welcome. Hello. Hello, Mark Langdon. Hi, Max. Hello, Philippe Auclair. And a good morning to you, Max. Uh, Dave says, uh, anyone else genuinely chuffed for Potter here? His little look to the camera and how he tried to stay cool but couldn't help smiling. I've got no love for Chelsea, but I'm happy to see him finally getting some joy from the game. Clearly a talented bloke. And before we get to handballs and encroachment, is everyone a little bit chuffed for Graham Potter? Philippe? Yes, I am even though it seemed that people were talking more about his more animated uh, behaviour on the touchline, which, of course, was the source of all the problems, as we know, that he was not animated enough in his technical zone. And that's why Chelsea was not winning. Um, Yes, because he seems a thoroughly decent man who's been given a very difficult job to do, who's basically been um, flooded with new players that he has to try to bet in and finds himself in a situation which is completely different to what he excels at normally. And... And they did look yesterday as if they had found a shape. They did look um, really up for it, obviously. Um, and um, I think his his relief was the relief of many other people who thought it was absolutely ridiculous to burden him uh, with the full responsibility of what was going on at Chelsea, which obviously was not the case. The full responsibility lied first and foremost with the new owners and the lack of strategy, the fact the club had been bled of all its hierarchy, uh, since you know last spring, basically, and he's taken over a very difficult position. He is a talented young coach. He deserves a chance. All of these things, which is why, despite the fact that we might not um, be blues at heart, um, we're still quite chuffed for him. He seems a decent sort, really. I mean, I sound, I sound, it sounds incredibly condescending, doesn't it? It's like, oh, tap on the back, well done, Graham. Yeah, I suppose it sounds sort of. It's just there's an element of surprise when it's an, there's a nice person in the game, which I think is probably a bit unfair. I think there are lots of actually nice people in the Graham game, in the Graham, in the game. Um, but, <laughs> uh, Barry, they, they, I don't know how many nice people are in the Graham. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> poor Graham. Um, uh, Barry, they deserved it, didn't they? Uh, they did, yeah. I thought they were the better side. They seemed to dominate. More or less throughout, Borussia Dortmund had a couple of chances when Chelsea went 2-0 down, but there were some standout performances. I thought Ben Chilwell and Rhys James played very, very well for Chelsea, and who knew they they would improve with two of their new best players back from injury. That, you know, there you go. Uh, and, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer, but... Uh, they're in the last day. I think it was kind of a, a free hit for Chelsea, some Chelsea fans last night. A lot of them still want Potter out, and they thought if they lost last night that that would hasten his departure. 
but they won. They won well. Seemed to be quite a rocking atmosphere at Stamford Bridge. And I suppose now that if Todd Bowley was you know, in any doubt about what to do, you you might as well let Graham Potter have the job till the end of the season, come what may, and and see from there. Do you think he's kind of gotten, Philippe alluded to this, uh, like a settled 11? I know Thiago Silva was out, but but it, I mean, it just felt like that shape worked for him. And Cucurella actually on the left of the three worked, which I was slightly worried about before the game. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, from, from Cucurella's point of view, his best performance that I've seen him play for Chelsea anyway, by a long way, um, he, he struggled a, a lot um, since he uh, arrived. I think certainly from the front three uh, point of view, we're starting to see, I think, what Potter thinks is his um, you know, best options there in, in the attacking third. Sterling is back fit. Uh, Felix is back from um, suspension. And Havertz, again, I was talking about Kukurea having a, a great game. Havertz also had one of, I think, his best games in a Chelsea shirt. Um, and you know that's going something for somebody that scored a winning goal in, in a Champions League final for them but he was so influential and it, it just will take time to get those combinations going you know the you know they haven't seen James and Chilwell enough as the the wing backs um you know since he, even before Potter arrived really there's been a lot of injuries in in those areas and the outside fullbacks those relationships they have with the wing backs the the two in midfield has changed plenty under Potter. He seemed to be really struggling to find what the right combination of duo should play there. And um, the front three, um, it, it all works together. And, you know, football is a, a team game and it will take time for those relationships to build. And we are, I think, starting to see what a, a sort of the, the basis of what a Chelsea team might look like. You'd still want Thiago Silva, I think, at the heart of the defence if he was fit. Um, you know, if, if Kante comes back to full fitness, would he make it into central midfield, for instance, alongside Enzo uh, Fernandez? And Chelsea are in this weird position now where the league doesn't matter to them because they, you know, they're stuck in mid-table and it'll all be about the Champions League. But actually, Potter might be using the Premier League not to rest players, but as a way of getting those combinations going and uh, without playing under pressure so much, you know, they're not going for a title, top four's completely gone. It might almost feel like a, like almost like a pre-season for them in that he can use those Premier League games to get the players ready for what he wants from them in, in the Champions League, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, okay, then um, the penalty, uh, like the controversial moment was the penalty, the decision, the encroachment and all that. Is that a penalty by the letter of the law, right? All I know is, as a football fan, that it shouldn't be a penalty, right? It's just too close. It's just, there's no, like, no, that is not what the handball law was invented for. And it's ridiculous. That's my opinion. I think I'm right, Philippe. I think you may be right, but in this particular case, I'm not too sure. Um, wow. I'm thinking. We, I don't uh, yeah. want to ever fall out. I don't want to no, fall out. With you no, 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 no. But I could, I could understand why they would be extremely upset at being, uh, you know, punished by a penalty. What is unfortunately playing against the Vols, I think, is when he's turning his back to the shot. His arm is actually going off. He's aligned with his body to start with and ends up slightly away from the body. And you could think of that as being actually an attempt or... I know I'm, I'm twisting myself into knots. I'm just trying to say that I can understand it more than others, you know. But, I mean, to, is it so different that the, the penalty, for example, that Tottenham was punished for, for Sissoko's 
hand in the Champions League final. He was not looking at the ball. Turned, went like this. He was a bit further. was a penalty. And, um, you know, sent Liverpool on their way. I don't know. I, 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 but I agree with you. In, you know, I'm just trying to... I'm twisting myself into knots because I'm trying to have a kind of debate, but there is no debate. It should never be a penalty. No. no I mean, you don't okay. need to have played football. <laughs> you, you know, Philippe, you have danced. You've probably danced with... I mean, I, you've probably danced with every, you know wonderful person in the French music industry, I imagine, in your years. And all you have to do is anyone who has swayed or dances know that if you move your body, and this is not useful as an audio medium as I sway from side to side, your arms do move. And it's just, it's just, oh, I find it so infuriating, Barry. I mean, there's, there's, not, there's nothing, I don't know what you're going to add, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. It probably is a handball by the letter of the law, but it, it shouldn't be. And I suppose the acid test is, how would Chelsea fans feel if the same decision went against them? They'd feel mightily aggrieved. But it went for them, so they don't care. They'll take it. And uh, Jude Bellingham was interviewed after the game. He he didn't want to comment too much because he didn't want to get in trouble or get a fine, but he still made it, his feelings quite clear that he thought it was a daft decision. And then... The encroachment, uh, or sorry, it, it, I mean, we're in a position where BT Sports resident expert referee Peter Walton said it definitely wasn't a penalty. Then as soon as the ref went to the screen and decided it was a penalty, Peter Walton agreed that, yes, of course it was a penalty. So if he doesn't know, what, what hope do the rest of us have? I think... Peter Wall, if you're going to have a refereeing expert in the studio or in in a, his little cupboard or wherever it is, they keep him <laughs> safely away from all the proper pundits. They should probably have one who is at least better able to express himself and who is more eloquent because that seems to be his main problem. Although last night he just did a complete U-turn. It was Tory-esque. <laughs> um, the encroachment, Mark. My understanding is this, right? Firstly, if an attacking player and a defending player are encroaching and the player misses the penalty, that should always be a retake. So so even if Kai Havertz had put that wide, the referee should order a retake, right? And that is something that is never implemented, like almost never implemented. However, if it goes to VAR, the rules are different because there is something called the VAR handbook, which by all accounts is not available online. I've been looking for it today. The VAR handbook says encroachment can only be reviewed by VAR if an attacker who encroached scores is or is directly involved in a goal being scored, i.e. after the penalty is taken, or a defender who encroached prevents an attacker playing or being able to play the ball in a situation where a goal might be scored. And actually, if you watch that back, there's no Chelsea player anywhere near the Dortmund player that clears it. But I still think that that is given once the defender has encroached and then clears the ball inside the penalty box. Um, I think it... It has to be agree, um, yeah. retaken, um, and I, I would blame the, the the Dortmund players in that instance. I mean, you know, I don't. Why would you be in the um, the starting position of, of, of a couple of, the def of those defenders was just all wrong. I mean, that they, you know, it was always um, you know going to potentially lead to that really, and there was no need for it. So um, I I feel like Dortmund 
a right to to be aggrieved about the handball because uh, the distance, you know, has to be taken into account and it felt too close to me. And I'm actually very surprised that more attackers don't just boot the ball at, at defenders' arms. I felt like that was something that they would do more often, but they don't seem to do it um, quite as frequently as, as what I thought. But at least there is a consistency, I think, in the Champions League, which is what a lot of people moaned about previously with handball, in that those are just given as handball, I think, in the, the Champions League nearly all all the time. And we come on here and moan about it sort of every um, sort of after each match day. But the encroachment one, I, I have no sympathy for Dortmund um, because um, defender was in the wrong position and you run the risk of, um, you know, of it being retaken. Jude Bellingham made an interesting point, which was it's hard when a penalty taker staggers their run-up because you... So basically every defender now has to sort of sta- be John Aldridge taking a penalty when they're going in. So they can't... They don't encroach. Phil says, can someone check for encroachment on Kane's second penalty? I'm fairly sure France are the encroachiest team of encroachers and I, for one, didn't realise that rule was ever enforced. I watched it back. Sadly, no French players are encroaching. So we don't go back to the World Cup quarterfinal. Uh, Philippe, you, your hand was raised. No, no, no. I was just saying that looking at the position of the uh, Dortmund player on the edge of the box when the penalty is taken, it's very much like sprinters getting ready for a 100-meter sprint. And in a way, what they're doing, it's a false start. They're almost unbalanced. And, and, and there is direct interference with play. If he doesn't touch the ball, the penalty is not retaken, right? So I'm fully agreed with Mark. Sorry. Sure, but 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 interestingly, if he doesn't touch the ball, the penalty should be retaken. If the ref and the lines and the assistant do it, but not if it goes to VAR, it's just a sort of bafflingly confusing bit that I spent half an hour looking at. I'm even more during confused the game. myself now. Even more yeah, confused. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you're allowed to be confused. The laws are confusing. IFAB are generally confusing, aren't they? Um, Dortmund marks didn't quite turn up. I mean, they didn't have Adeyemi, right? Brandt getting early. Apparently, he's been on brilliant form. You know, they had this run of 10 games, 10 win, you know, 10 games in a row that they'd won. They hadn't necessarily been brilliant in every single game, but it's unfortunate that, that Brandt couldn't play the whole game, I think. He, he has been very influential. Uh, Makoko as well um, w- was out. So it, it, once they went behind and they were, you were looking on the bench, it didn't feel like there were that many options really to sort of help them get back into the game. Bellingham did miss a, a really big opportunity that... Um, he would normally take, and um, but apart from that, um, they they did lack, um, I suppose, quality really um, in in the final third. I was looking at the stats though, and the, the game felt very much like Chelsea were in control. But it was thirteen each on shots, four each on shots on target, and uh, Dortmund finished with sixty one percent possession. But it it never really felt like that, and almost as if Chelsea maybe were controlling the game. Uh, even when they they didn't have the ball and, and looked dangerous on a number of occasions outside of the two goals, including the penalty, and even in in the first game in Dortmund, they created more than enough chances to deserve. I mean, to reach the um, the, the, the quarterfinals, and um, you know, as far as Dortmund are concerned, they will look at what Chelsea have spent um, in in the last twelve months or so, and you know, they can't really compete with that, can they? Particularly on the bench. What chance of Chelsea getting any further in this then, Baz? Do you reckon? This, this is their season. Well, obviously it depends who they get in the next round and it will be a good team who will take a lot of beating, but... That could be Spurs. Yeah, or it could be Spurs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd give them a 
a de- they, I have I have no idea what price there will be or what odds there will be, but I'd, I'd give them a chance. I mean, I just think that you know they, they've reached finals and won Champions Leagues from sort of worse positions than this. Um, you know, the the Di Matteo one, you could never have predicted that. Even I mean, even sort of about five minutes before the end um, of the final, you, you you still didn't fancy them at all. I mean, they were completely outplayed for most of that. Avram Grant took them to a final. Um, the year they won it under Tuchel, he obviously came in uh, midway through. So, I mean, Ch- Chelsea kind of defy logic in, in many aspects. And they, I think, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll feel like they can give any of those teams left a, a really good game over two legs as, as long as they can improve as, as the season goes on. And, and Graham Potter will have time to identify uh, how many hundreds of millions of pounds he wants to leave on the bench uh, before the next round. And uh, so, yeah, there will be much more together. Kante being back could be also a, a big one. I mean, the people within the club, they've been very, very careful um, with his um, convalescence recuperation because they knew that in the past, he's come back twice, I think, too early. This time they want to get it right. And it could be a, a, a big difference. And also the fact the form... We haven't there's a player we haven't mentioned, but that's why I, I put my hand up. I think Kovacic was absolutely magnificent yesterday. He, he brings them something. He has this capacity to go run with the ball in a very difficult, tricky situation, go through the lines when the pass is not on, and suddenly Chelsea are out of trouble. And he's a really super important player for them. So, uh, congratulations, Grand Potter. Right, that'll do for part one. Part two, um, we'll discuss Benfica's victory over Bruges and look ahead to tonight's games in the Champions League. Now, before we start part two, um, Barry Glendening is 50 on Monday. And uh, if you would like to send a birthday message to Barry, uh, you can email footballweekly at theguardian.com. Um, you can say what he means to you uh, or anything on that note. And we'll read out some of the best ones. Very much presuming Barry doesn't listen back to the pod. Oh, Barry, if you are listening to this bit, then, you know, well, we're rumbled. Um, but if nobody could tell him, that would be really useful because uh, then at least when he gets these nice messages, it'll be a nice surprise. But if he does find out about it, it's not a big deal. So, uh, yeah, footballweekly at theguardian.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Benfica 5, Scott Parker's Club Bruges 1. Um, I mean, we didn't. Mark expects Bruges to get through. They're already two 0 down, but they were they were roundly hammered. And look, from our perspective, it's interesting. To, it was Scott Parker was an interesting appointment. It hasn't really worked, has it? No, and I mean the um, the BT Sport punditry after the game. I I was sort of chuckling to myself because um, they were using words like brave and bold of Scotty Parker to to travel to to Belgium and you know what a top guy he is. And I was just wondering, imagine sort of somebody not qualified or maybe not that great from abroad comes to um, England um, and does a similarly bad job. And everybody's wondering why he's taking the job of somebody like Scott Parker, um, uh, you know, good, solid Englishman. Um, so hopefully kind of when there are any kind of European managers that, that come across in future, you know, that are still learning the, the game they you know, in terms of the managerial trade they can be given the same kind of respect, I suppose, when it doesn't go um, well. I mean, and they're having a horrendous time domestically to the point where they might not even make the top four in Belgium when they, they um, the playoffs split. Um, after the game, I mean, Scott Parker almost felt like he was, you know, felt like he was going to be sacked. He took off 
Noah Lang, um, which suggested that he was already thinking about the weekend league game, that they'd kind of given up. So I think from, from Club Bruce's point of view, even though um, they were up against it against Benfica, um, they were massively outclassed over the two games. But it might just be that Benfica are just really, really good and they've got some um, extremely talented players. I wonder, is it brave to take a job in a country <laughs> where you, that you can get to directly, directly on the train from St Pancras. You don't even have to change, do you? Like, like. I mean, it's not like taking a job on the other side of the world. Let's say if you go from England to Australia, it's not like that, is it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no one says I'm brave, um, and they would be right. Uh, and and actually, Philippe Marks right. Benfica have a, such a talented side. I find them an absolute delight to watch. I find them one of the most um, seducive and seductive teams in European football when they're like that. And that's, and that's a, a team that year after year after year, and I know we've said that many often, loses his very best players and he doesn't seem to affect them at all. They just find, they've got, just got more up their sleeve. They're, they've got an ability to spot talent both at home and abroad, which is unsurpassed, I think. They've got, I think, a very good manager in Roger Schmidt, I mean, which you know, should also doff the cap to him because... Again, nobody, I mean, he's a very good manager, he's proved it in the past, but I'm not sure that people looked at him when he was appointed thinking, oh, he's a natural fit for Benfica. Well, he obviously is. Um, and as to the performance, five of the six goals which were scored were of the highest order. And I include the last goal by Meyer, a scored uh, uh, for, for Club Brugge. I mean, this outside of the boot. I mean, what a hit that was. Oh, but the rest, you know, yeah. you just wonder um, about Rafa Silva. I mean, how, how good is Rafa Silva? I don't know. When he's like that, it's just just a pure genius. And and then, you know, you could go through, you know, uh, Gonzalo Ramos as well. The goals were very high quality. Um, even actually, um, uh, their first um, disallowed goal, goal would have been one of the goals of the season, the João Mario back heel behind the standing leg. That was an absolute, that was ravishing. And you've got to think about them as being dark horses, which are not that dark at all in this competition. Um, they've been, you know, I, I, I just find them, you can hear it. I mean, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about it. I, I really wish them well. And all the more so that the way they do it, the football they play, the way this team is built, the way this club functions is just absolutely magnificent. Are you are you saying in terms of dark horses, they're they're sort of dappled grey, chestnut, bay? I would say dapple, maybe, you know, maybe dappled, and changing with the you know with the sun as well. You you don't have the quite the same. You see one of those. Was it brave of Roger Schmidt to go to Beijing, uh, Guang from Bayer Leverkusen, or is anyone going to the Chinese league in around twenty seventeen? Motivated not necessarily by bravery, but more by <laughs> the absolute pots of gold. Um, anyway, yeah, well done to Benfica. Mark, you wanted to do a... Uh, unless you had anything vital to say on this game, Barry? No, I just... I, I'm puzzled by how it's all gone wrong for Club Brugge because they were unbelievably good in the group stages. I mean, they weren't just getting through games. They were winning at a canter and scoring some fantastic goals and then it all seems to have gone horribly wrong for them and I'm I'm not an ardent follower of Belgian football so I don't know why uh, maybe Mark might have some idea I don't know no I mean from the point of view that um 
you know, if you look at that group, actually, Leverkusen ended up sort of changing manager and, and Xabi Alonso uh, came in. Um, I mean, they, the, the result away to Porto was um, remarkable. Jukla, um sort of would hurt them a lot. And now he um, doesn't play. Um, so I'm not sure if something's gone on there or whether it was just one of those, you know, he was hot at the time um, and, and, and now he's kind of just gone back to a normal level. And Atletico Madrid uh, were also not in a great place. So maybe they just um, found themselves right place, right time in terms of that group. That team, I mean, two of the major reasons why it had gone to that level have gone. The manager, Philippe Clément, has gone. Um, Charles de Catalera, who was so important in that team, has gone as well. Luck was on their side a little bit at the beginning of the Champions League uh, uh, group phase. Uh, things were going their way. And it's, I think, a case of a, a team that is overperforming and suddenly realizes, oh my goodness, um, we're not quite as good as we thought we were. Things are, when things are not going our way, we're finding it very difficult. And they look a bit lost to me now. Um, so would you be surprised if, if you lost? You know, not everybody's Benfica. Not everybody can lose managers and players and carry on uh, as per usual. And uh, yes, maybe there were overachievers who've, who've been found out. Mark, time for your Europa Conference League minute. Well, first of all, yeah, I didn't even realise until last night there was a Europa Conference League game actually taking place on the Tuesday rather than the Thursday. But Lazio, I think one of the teams that people would have thought well, you know, got a good chance of winning um, the the, um, the Conference League if they take it seriously and they just beaten Napoli um, and you know, could follow their, their great rivals Roma in sort of winning this competition. They were beaten 2-1 by um, RZ Alkmaar in, in Rome um, on, on Tuesday night. So, um, you know, the kind of tournament that already looked quite open um, could, could be even more so. You've got West Ham, Villarreal and Nice would be, I think, three of the teams that fancy their chances. But I would have certainly put Lazio um, in that bracket uh, before they were beaten by the Dutch side. Tonight, um, for those of you listening to this before those games happen, uh, Spurs, uh, Milan, AC Milan are 1-0 up going into this. Human Sun said it's uh, Spurs' most important game of the season. Uh, Antonio Conte is back in the dugout. He says, I still have to recover weight, but for the rest, I'm okay. My feeling is good. I have a lot of energy. I will try to transfer my energy to my players because it's an important game for us. Barry, this seems a very hard one to call. Oh, it's impossible to call because there are two teams who are ridiculously unpredictable. And um, I have no idea how it will go. A lot of the punditocracy seems to think Spurs will turn this around quite comfortably. I wouldn't necessarily share their confidence, but I also wouldn't be particularly surprised if that turned out to be the case. I have no idea how this will go because you don't know what Spurs are going to turn up. We don't know what Milan are going to turn up. Um, but Spurs have home advantage in in their wonderful stadium and that may tip the balance in their favour. I, I, there is no result to tonight's game that will surprise me particularly. No. Eric Dyer is suspended. I don't know if that is bad or good. Hoiberg is back. I don't know if that is bad or good. But, you know, we shall see, eh? Um, by PSG. Uh, Michael says, how will Neymar's neighbours feel about his season-ending <laughs> season injury? Oh, dear. Uh, more, more time at home is likely to result in more parties. Um you think, I mean, for the balance of the side, we've talked about this before, Philippe, but 
sort of should help them, right? Mbappe made such a difference when he came on in the first leg. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm not the only person to think that, apart from the fact that every single PSG fan I've been talking to uh, says exactly the same. I even did a little um, Twitter poll um, with PSG fans asking them, are you a better side without Neymar? And that was about three weeks ago. And I think something like 75% of them said, yes, we are. And uh, in fact, I think there's um, something that Christophe Galtier said in the uh, pre-match press conference, uh, which is drawing a lot of comment. And he said, and I'm quoting verbatim, he said, we're better balanced without Neymar. Ooh. That's your manager saying that. And then he, he, he checked himself and he said, but of course we score more goals with Neymar. And he gave his numbers, which is true in the, in the French league. Neymar, when he's not injured, has been, has been good in terms of statistically speaking. But the type of uh, team that he can put together in the formation that he used at the beginning of the season, um, this kind of 3-5-2, basically, with Messi and Mbappe up front, looks much, much better balanced. And, and he's absolutely terrifying at times. I mean... Don't know if you watched the uh, the game against Marseille, the so-called Classico of of Ligue 1, but at times those two combining were were totally, I mean, unplayable, totally unplayable. Uh, especially uh, with Vitinha being back in in the side as well in midfield gives a lot of uh, solidity, but also imagination. And no, and and it's a situation where you can perfectly imagine that a PSG side which will be less fragile, obviously, when it is out of possession because Neymar doesn't do anything defensively. Um, is totally capable of of reversing um, the result from the first leg, and I I have a strange feeling that they might just do that as a matter of fact. I certainly feel like they've they they've got a, a decent chance, probably more than you would normally expect of a team that has lost um, the, the first game one 0 When Mbappe came on um, in that that first game, it seemed to change kind of the dynamic really of what what Paris were trying to do, and you know he was a big threat, and the way that Bayern Munich played, they. They just do leave space um, you know, behind and I don't see them changing that. And that will encourage, I think, the you know, Paris, uh, PSG's potential to score and, and to make a real game of this. I suppose um, one of the problems is that too often in these big matches, like they just have a mad 15 minutes where um, you know, they, they can dominate um, teams for, for large periods and then just concede two goals um, that you just didn't even see coming. It happened against Real Madrid. So I definitely feel like there, there's the ability to do it and totally agree that without Neymar um, sort of, and without without the ball, that gives them sort of better balance and, and better shape. And, you know, there's still enough match winners, w- w- you know, within the squad. I'm I'm just almost gutted, really, that um, I'm a Spurs fan. Not not just for the fact that they, you have to watch the, that rubbish most weeks, but um, that I'm going to the game tonight, and I'd much rather just watch um, Bayern against Paris Saint Germain. But I feel sort of obliged um, to to sort of make the trip to North London. But I, I think you know, if, if you were looking at which game to choose to watch, um, it has to be this one. Um, you know, the um, that Milan Tottenham first leg was horrendous. Just to um, uh, reassure the people, the good people of Bougival, where Neymar has his residence, he is not in Bouge- he is not in Paris at the moment. Uh, he's been operating on his ankle, and which means, by the way, he's going to miss the whole of the rest of the season. Where's he doing that? Ayanapa? Where's he? <laughs> where? <laughs> no, in Doha. That's oh, well known. Uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, he might stay for a while in Doha. So they've got, I think, a couple of weeks of peace and quiet at home. And then afterwards, I think he might convalesce in Brazil. He's been known to do that uh, in the past. So uh, I, I'm not too I'm not too worried about the good burgers of Bougival. 
he might stick it on Airbnb, I guess. Then you never know who's going to turn up, do you? Uh, right, that'll do for part two. Part three, uh, we'll begin with some news from Watford. Some shocking news from Watford. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. David writes, Andy Warhol said, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. But he never mentioned that they would also have managed Watford. Mike says, has the Watford manager getting sacked lost its magic? Uh, Fraser, who is the current Watford manager, Barry? The current Watford manager is Chris Wilder, who has taken over from Slavin Bilic. I knew he was the Watford manager. I think this came up uh, in a recent pod and I, I was able to answer without hesitation. And I don't think there's any sadness on the part of Watford fans that Slavin Bilic has gone because uh, from what I've seen uh, from our friend Simon Burnton, who's a Watford fan, uh, and uh, and others on social media there seem to have a very moribund style of football under Bilic. No particular clear evidence of any sort of plan. The football wasn't particularly pleasant to watch. And so it's obviously, well, it's never a surprise when a Watford manager gets the sack, but it doesn't seem to be at all surprising here. And maybe he even deserved the sack. Chris Wilder's in to the end of the season. I suppose it's a free hit if he makes it to the end of the season. Uh, he may be gone already. You may have to do a voice note after this <laughs> pod, Max. Yeah, we had a question from Thomas who said, who do you think will be the manager of Watford next week after Wilder's replacement is sacked? You know, it's a handy one for, for Wilder. You know, I don't think getting sacked from Watford even constitutes a stain on your managerial <laughs> CV at this stage. But uh, he may do well. He may not. We, we shall see. Uh, Jenkins says, can the panel name the last six Watford managers? No. Nope. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Uh, no, is this Philippe? Mark? Give no. It. Well, <laughs> um, well, Rob Edwards um, was the yeah. one. That well, yeah, Bill- the long- Billich. Then Rob, Rob Edwards. Edwards. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Rob okay. Edwards was the long-term plan, wasn't he? Um, mm. That lasted um, a couple of weeks. We had, um, and he's now doing superbly at Luton. Yeah, and they're, they're playing each other, aren't they, in a, in a couple of weeks. So um, um, that, that that could be uh, quite interesting. Uh, it was Hodgson and, and Ranieri, wasn't it, before Correct. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then no, two I, who, I mean, you wouldn't get these if we could sit here all day. We'd be the longest ever football weekly. Uh, if anyone had, if anyone is yelling Cisco Munoz or Vladimir Ivich at their uh, at their listening device, then congratulations to you. Simon Weaver is the longest manager serving management EFL. He's managed Harrogate Town since two thousand and nine. Okay, eleven of those years were outside the football league, but in that time, Watford have had twenty three managers. Well, they've had. They've had 23 managerial changes. Obviously, Kike Sanchez-Flores was probably 18 of those, and I just couldn't be bothered to go back and check. Um, but there we are. Uh, I think, you know, good luck to Chris Wilder. May your time in charge be fruitful and fun. This is the big story of the week, isn't it, Barry? Vout Veghorst's sort of apology or slash uh, explanation. Uh, he was filmed tapping the This Is Anfield sign before Manchester United's 7-0 defeat against Liverpool on Sunday. Cue absolute opprobrium of all the things you could do. And Vout took to social media to say, normally I never react on media topics, but for this one it's worth it because you amazing Manchester United fans are important to me. I just want to clarify the video that's doing the rounds. From the national team, 
I know that Virgil van Dyke always touches that sign and the only intention I had was to stop him touching it and wind him up before the game. As a child, I always supported FC20 and as a proud player now for Manchester United, my dedication to this incredible club can never be questioned. 100, that red 100 double underlined emoji type thing. Sunday was a terrible day for all of us. We are putting everything into making it right in the next weeks. We will bounce back together and achieve our aims this season. Heart emoji made with the hands, not the heart emoji, but the two hands together to make the heart. Um, your reaction, Barry? Yeah, well, my reaction was initially was one of bewilderment because I wasn't aware he'd touched the sign. And even if he had, I wouldn't see it as a particularly big deal. But I take it Manchester United fans were upset that he had touched I the believe, sign. I believe so. Uh, some probably, were. Possibly, yeah. And a lot of football fans, especially when the team has just been battered 7-0, uh, can get upset by the most ridiculous things. Some of the Manchester United fans tried to slink off the pitch on Sunday afternoon without applauding the away fans. You know, do the dance, do the dance, come here and applaud us so we can boo you, <laughs> shout abuse at you. Um, and Raphael Varane, you know, shouted loudly and insisted they come back. And then yesterday there was a picture of the, in the Daily Mail of, um, who was it? Out, they were out shopping. And oh, they drove, no. <laughs> drove to the shop in a McLaren supercar worth several hundred thousand pounds. I can't even remember who it was, but tut tut, you can't, you can't go for bread and milk in a car after losing 7-0. You should sit at home in in a ice bath, you know, and then get out occasionally to hit yourself with a a big stick, and then get back back in. Do you think? Do you think if you get home after a defeat and you smile <laughs> at your children, your children should shop you in? Like that's that's how bad it is. You can't. You, you you couldn't possibly smile. Like we've all been in dressing rooms, right, where your team lose, and everyone's a bit quiet afterwards until someone pipes up and then you forget about it and have a beer and I have played with incredibly good footballers who it's almost like grief losing like I understand losing is important for elite sports people and that's one of the reasons but this whole idea that you're you're you know you're not allowed to what is it what, what, what do you think it's like one day per goal so like the Manchester United players are not allowed to do anything or smile or just exist beyond being moribund themselves they're just looking like droopy they could they, they could walk they could walk out like droopy the dog and just look sad at people for a week and then it's okay are they allowed to smile if they score against Real Betis because that's within that time period very hard to keep up with. I, I think it should be just manly handshakes and a, and a, <laughs> a quick jog back to the, the centre circle for kickoff. Um, <laughs> I, I apparently, it was Marcus Rashford who went to, went to oh. the shops in his McLaren supercar. And, I mean, I would question the wisdom. Maybe he was only getting bread and milk, but I'm, I'm looking at the car. I'm guessing the boot isn't particularly big, so he probably wasn't doing a big shop. Yeah, uh, but he's unlikely to have a Vauxhall Cavalier for the weeks when he had, when Manchester United have lost, right? <laughs> you know what is it? We lost seven nil. I'll go out in the Punto. <laughs> How does it work anyway? Um, on to much more serious issues. Uh, uh, Philippe, talk to me about Noel Legret, head of the France Football Federation since twenty eleven. Yeah, um, yeah, it is um, a rather unsavoury uh, moment in French um, French football at the moment. Well, Noel Le Gret, um 
who's basically been the, the don of French football for all this time. And before that, he was already involved in French football. He's been involved in French football for, for forever. He got caught up in a number of revelations and allegations and accusations around what was going on in the French FA. The accusations are, are uh, improper conduct, uh, various financial misdemeanors. In a personal capacity, um, he's also been uh, accused of having an attitude towards women, which is uh, deplorable, to say the least. And what happened is that he was then set aside by the French FA when the scandal became so big they couldn't do anything else. And uh, he has finally been kicked out of office uh, just a couple of days ago. But the extraordinary thing is that he has got one very powerful ally, who is Jenny Infantino, president of FIFA. And that until yesterday, Mr. Legret, despite being disgraced in his own country, was a candidate for a place on the FIFA Council. And amazingly enough, the FIFA Ethics Committee and Governance Committees and whatever had deemed him fit for the job, which is quite extraordinary in itself. But don't cry for Mr. Legret, who is 81 now, too much, because he's got a new job to get to. And this new job is as head of the FIFA office in Paris. And this is going to happen. Just a few things I have to, to read regarding the Legret story. Um, earlier this year, he denied allegations of uh, sexual misconduct. A statement from the Federation last Tuesday said regarding uh, the audit, the FFF notes that this report does not mention any systemic failure nor any breach of its duty to govern. The FFS therefore wishes to reaffirm its strong commitment against gender-based and sexual violence as part of its license protection policy. This commitment was and remains a priority. The FFF will also continue work to reform its governance. This work had been undertaken even before the start of the audit. However, the FFF undertakes to hold itself to all the useful recommendations of this audit. You mentioned Infantino. Uh, there's another FIFA story. Alan writes, lots of controversy about Adriana Lima being named as a global fan ambassador for FIFA. I'd like to know which supermodel would Philippe pick to represent the average workday work day football fan. Adriana Lima has been appointed as yeah, the, the first global fan ambassador for FIFA. Um, uh, former FIFA council member Moya Dodd said it was baffling, sends the wrong message to players and fans. Lima will apparently develop, promote and participate in several global initiatives in her role. Infantino said, when you get to meet Adriana, you feel right away her warmth, kindness and how approachable and passionate she is about our game. She lives and breathes football. And that is also why she can be an excellent link between FIFA and fans worldwide. Lima said she was very thankful and honoured to be chosen. Moya Dodd is an Australian uh, who was a member of FIFA Council from 2013 to 2016, said, I asked whether FIFA ambassador will be delivering messages on body image, well-being and healthy eating. What will this ambassador represent to the large and growing population of aspirational women's football players and fans who love the game because it shows us what empowerment and equality can look like? Um, Dodd also referred to comments Lima made in 2006 in an interview with GQ in which she said abortion was a crime. So that seems like another win for FIFA there with that appointment. Uh, Lima's publicist, Laurent Boy, said the model's stance had changed. We can proudly say Miss Lima has been promoting a healthy lifestyle for several years. And like many people, her position on many LGBTQIA plus and women issues has evolved and she is considered an ally. So anyway, she's the first global fan ambassador. Philippe's head, head is in his hands there. Yeah, she might love the game. Football's for everyone, I guess. I'm sure she loves the game. I'm, you know, I've, I've just seen this picture. I've tweeted of the two of them 
No, uh, I haven't seen. Uh, no, oh, you should it, have a look at, at it because it right away. Jan, Jan, Jani is uh, Jani is basically um, Tinius and Brassneck, you know, put together, and they're photographed at the best. And he's wearing a a tux which is too too small for him, and his bow tie is not quite in the right position, and and he completes the combo with white trainers. <laughs> he's he's extraordinary. He's extraordinary. Maybe the photographer caught his bow tie mid spin. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wanted a, a word, Philippe, on Will Still, the manager of Stade de Rim. Oh, I just 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 mentioned en passant uh, that um, uh, you know the basically the the man who is to French football what Scott Parker is to Belgian football uh, is having a fantastic time in in <laughs> in Stade de Reims. Um, a club that he helped from time to time when he was uh, an even younger manager, uh, an assistant manager. He's only, I think, still 29. And um, and Will Still is, I think, the longest, he has the longest undefeated run in European football with Thomas Frank of Brentford at the moment. And Stadarans, who were in the relegation zone, have now moved up and up and up. And they're now uh, in the top 10 of Ligue 1 and their future is secure. And all of this, thanks to this young man, uh, who is English but grew up in in Belgium, and and please, uh, I'm not. I could speak for hours about Will Still, but have a look at his story. It's absolutely extraordinary uh, how somebody who started his career as a manager, basically as an unpaid video analyst, finds himself in charge of a Liga club. It's it's a remarkable, and I do think the Guardian has actually published a um, uh, a long piece written by Will Still himself for about mm. you know his uh, yeah, yeah absolutely well worth checking. So bravo to him. Uh, Martin says, how many deflections must an Ethan Pinnock shot take before it's ineligible for a goal of the season? Barry. Oh, Ethan. Oh, it was beautiful. Um, and I think it's a measure of the, the football weekly reach that when Ethan Pinnock scored that absolutely <laughs> sensational <laughs> opener for Brentford on Monday, that uh, I, I immediately tweeted, you know, here's his, his goal of the season contender, Pushkas Award <laughs> contender for this season or this year. Uh Loads of people got back to me and said that when Ethan Pinnock scores a worldie like that, I'm the first person they think of, <laughs> <laughs> which is a damning indictment on my legacy and poor Ethan by association. Just, just think if you'd thought if you'd if you'd really backed a more, you know, just a more regular goal scorer, how many more people would think of you more often if you'd gone for? I know it's only it's only Ethan Pinnock and Kalechi Iheanacho. The the uh, you know, so you know, they're bold choices, and maybe Christian Benteke, who is playing for DC United. I saw the other day. Worth saying, Mark, it was a really good win for Brentford over Fulham. Both those sides going really well, and fascinating to see with those two and Brighton. If any of them can make a serious push for. You know, fourth might be pushing it, but maybe for Brighton, but, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, all those European places. Um, I think as far as Brighton are concerned, I think they are top four contenders. Um, in terms of Brentford, I'd set the sights slightly lower, but still, you know, a, a great season. And the, the bright lights of the Europa Conference League could be awaiting Ben Mee and, and, and co, really. They, I mean, they, the, the way they do it, um, you know, Thomas Frank, uh, Philippe mentioned there, the unbeaten run. I think in terms of sort of Europe's top leagues, they're in the bottom 10 for past success rate. So they're not that bothered about sort of tapping it around to each other and playing um, safe passes in non-dangerous areas. They 
are not afraid to get the ball forward and um, you know play to their strengths. And you know Ivan Tony is you know one of those strengths. And uh, you know the up he's upcoming what looks like you know could, could well be a ban might be what stops them um, from 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 reaching those European ambitions. Cabanosti says, following on from Barney's unique take on footballers' nicknames, uh, with his excellent uh, idea that Phil Billings' nickname should be paperless. Uh, he says, I really fervently hope that Wilfred and Didi's nickname is simply yes. And uh, I've done that joke many times before, and I, I hope it is. But it's hard on a pitch if you go, yes, yes. Because that's, you know, when you want the ball, would be confusing. Bakayo van der Poel says, how is Mark coping with the vegetable shortages? It's tough, isn't it, out there at the moment, Max? Um, I'm, I'm ticking along just, just fine. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I, yeah I'd, I'd say I struggled more with the, the toilet roll shortages in COVID than I have with the vegetable ones now. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, when you walk into the supermarket, do you, do you, do you even like... Do you even flirt with the vegetable uh, art? I mean, you yeah, have children. No, no, it's, I mean, I hope they no, eat vegetables. It's heavy petting uh, with the vegetables. I mean, I, you know, I shop for the whole um, f- family. So um, it is last on the list um, in terms of the way I do the shop is to always end up in the vegetable aisle. Do, do you know their names? Do you know what they're called? What, 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 what <laughs> my, my, my children names? or the vegetables? <laughs> so, I would like a pound of those, this purple thing uh, I, there. I, I, I struggled with... Uh, my my son has um, what's that the green one um, that you have with with eggs um, doesn't narrow um, it down avocado avocado <laughs> and I, I struggled to All know right. where that was in the kind of uh, I was sort of walking around the just that area the fruit and veg area for quite some time before the avocado so I wasn't quite sure what batch of family it, it sort of belonged to so that, that 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 was kind of the trickiest moment I've had I'd say in the last month or so well you do need a right, sort okay. of expertise buying avocados is difficult because you don't want to get it, it too is. ripe you don't want to get it too unripe mm. uh they're very they're very expensive so if you get it wrong it's it's a can be a complete waste of money and you may have to play the long yeah. game leave it on the window ledge to soften a bit then you forget about it and you go back in three weeks and it's just there black and yeah and also ethically avocados are a little bit in the gray area because they're grown in peru and mexico and there's like kind of avocado wars and so forth oh really yeah, uh, yeah. Wow. so what are you saying like ethically i'm not allowed to eat an avocado that... No, you can eat them when they come from Spain, for example. But Peruvian and Mexican avocados, mm-mm, not too sure about that. Right. So this was the Vegetable Football Weekly. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's, well, Vegetable Weekly, but and the key is, takeaway is to just not to have that many conversations with Philippe, because by the end, you're not allowed to do anything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I can't have an avocado, really. I mean, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's enough for today. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Max. Cheers, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow with Spurs AC Milan and Bayern PSG. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian. 